I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified on July 9, 1868. Last week, the National Constitution Center and the Thurgood Marshall Institute at the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund co-hosted a day-long symposium commemorating this important anniversary. In this We the People episode, former Attorney General Eric Holder discusses the importance of the 14th Amendment today during the symposium's keynote conversation. He is joined by Sherilyn Eiffel, President and Director Counsel of LDF, and We the People host Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you so much, James, for co-sponsoring with us this wonderful day of celebration and learning about the 14th Amendment on its 150th anniversary. General Holder, welcome back to the National Constitution Center. You were, here. you were here last when President Obama, then candidate Obama, gave his famous race speech I here. That was uh, a memorable day, and uh, it's, uh, it's good to be back. We're so glad to have you. So we're here to learn about the 14th Amendment. When Thurgood Marshall argued Brown versus Board of Education, he read Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson for inspiration. But today, although the country's having a passionate debate about the meaning of racial equality, people seem to know less about the 14th Amendment. Why do Americans know less about the 14th Amendment today, and what should they know about it? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that people probably know less about the 14th Amendment if you look at it in kind of a vacuum, but I think the arguments that we have amongst each other um, are all really kind of framed by the 14th Amendment. What does, you know, equal protection mean? What does due process mean? Um, what does citizenship mean, you know? Uh, all things that are central to what the 14th Amendment is all about. People might not be able to quote the 14th Amendment, and yet the arguments that we have as, as a people really are things that are, I think, framed up by, uh, framed up by the amendment. But does that matter? You know, when, when, when people start talking about free speech issues, for example, they're, they're, people are very clear yeah, yeah. that their right to free speech is grounded in the Constitution. You know, I have my First Amendment, First rights. amendment rights. When people yeah. talk about their right to bear arms and in the whole gun debate, you know, you, you go 30 seconds before somebody mentions the Second Amendment, which, which gives a grounding to these arguments, right, in the text, the seminal text of our country. But when we talk about equality, and when we talk about justice and due process, and even citizenship, uh, so often these are kind of not anchored. They're kind of unmoored. They're, they're arguments that we have, but there doesn't seem to be the same recognition that these also derive from a very powerful constitutional anchor. Do you, do, you, do you think that that's important? And if so, how could we change that? How, what would be the project of, of getting people to say, hey, I have those rights in the 14th Amendment, just like they do about the First Amendment? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And it would be, I think, an effective thing to have people more conversant with um, the 14th Amendment, the text mm -hmm. of the, the 14th Amendment, um, understand more of its history that I'm sure you all have been talking about today. Uh, it might help elevate the conversations, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that we have. I, so I think the point that you make I is a good one. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, the, the 14th Amendment took those great words from the Declaration of, of Independence, all men are created equal, and, and, and really infused that, put that into, um, into our nation. And it's interesting, all men are created equal, but the 14th Amendment talks about persons. You know, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't go, doesn't, isn't gender specific. Um, but I think there is, a, there is the, the point you make is a good one. And so I think that you know, forums like this, um, studies of the 14th Amendment are, are indeed good things. But you know, I think as a nation, we need to be more conversant with our, our founding documents, the amendments to them. Um, so much of what we say now is unmoored, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> not factually based. Um, Shall we say? <laughs> that's not good. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, having a, a greater, a greater uh, knowledge of, mm -hmm. of the 14th Amendment would be, uh, would be a good thing. This tees up Jeff's commercial about the 
National Constitution Center and how we can all learn more about the 14th Amendment in our app. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that, Sherilyn. <laughs> Why? I just happen to have in my pocket this remarkable tool called the Interactive Constitution, which I want you all to download. Not now, because I'm talking, but after the show. <laughs> and here you can click on the 14th Amendment and see the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America talking about the meaning of the Citizenship Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And you'll see where they agree and disagree, and you can educate yourself. But as General Holder said, many of these are technical arguments, and people are less familiar with them. And also, there's a lot of disagreement about the meaning of them. So you mentioned, General Holder, our current controversies, from voting rights to affirmative action to gerrymandering to marriage equality. All of these are 14th Amendment questions, but folks disagree about exactly what the amendment means. Why don't we start, because we want the audience to understand what everyone agrees the 14th Amendment means. What are the core protections uh, that you can't, uh, the government can't engage in? School segregation was struck down by the 14th Amendment. If you, if you were teaching school kids what they should know about what the 14th Amendment protects, what would it be? Well, due process. I mean, the government can only do certain things um, in re relation to the, the citizenry of, uh, of this country, that there are, there are boundaries um, dictated by the due process clause, but then there are also rights that people have from the equal protection clause, um, that you have the right to be treated in the same way as your other, as your fellow citizens. Um, you know, that you are, that, that from birth, you mm -hmm. know, from birth. If you are born in, he, in the United States of America, you are a citizen of this country, and as a result of that, rights flow to you, privileges flow to you, privileges and immunities flow to you, uh, simply by virtue of the fact that you were born in the United States. It doesn't matter uh, about your gender, doesn't matter where your parents come from, doesn't matter about your sexual orientation, um, you have certain rights as a, as, as a citizen. You know, you, you obviously served as the Attorney General of the United States, and so it seems to me one of the most important aspects of the 14th Amendment is one we talked about in an earlier panel, which is the relationship between um, the federal government and state governments, mm -hmm. right? The enforcement clauses, right, of the 14th Amendment, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which essentially gives to Congress the power to enforce the rights under those Civil War amendments. And so to be, you know, the Attorney General of the United States and to oversee the Department of Justice and to have the power, right, to enforce the civil rights statutes passed by Congress, right? Congress had the authority to create the Voting Rights Act or mm -hmm. to create the Civil Rights Act of 1964, all connected to that power. Um, in those amendments, and then, you know, through the agency of the Justice Department, your job is to kind of enforce them. This is another relationship that I think is maybe not fully understood. You know, certainly if people understand equal protection and due process and even birthright citizenship, the, the least part that's ever talked about are the enforcement clauses of the 14th Amendment. And yet that's the ordering of reordering after post-Civil War of the relationship between the states and the federal government in which you have an amendment that tells you what the state cannot do to you and says that Congress has the power to enforce that, to enforce those rights that you just talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that's a really important part that kind of doesn't come out. Yeah, there was certainly, I mean, again, I'm sure this is thing, these are things you've talked about during the course of the day, but our nation was reordered mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. these amendments. Um, I tend to think that there was the revolution, there was the second iteration, the uh, after 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. Uh, I think the Civil Rights Movement and mm -hmm. all that happened there mm -hmm. Which is really, I think, kind of connected to the mm -hmm. spirit that was let loose by those post-Civil War movements, uh, uh, amendments. Uh, that's another iteration, and I think that we're going to have a fourth iteration mm -hmm. after um, this era that we are presently um, mm -hmm. dealing with. I, I think there's going to be there is what I've come to call kind of a new American engagement um, that I think is going to lead to a, a, a fourth iteration of. of Can of you our say nation. more about that? Why, why do you why do you think that, and what will it, what what will be the ingredients of this engagement? Well, I, I think you see it already um, in the way in which people have um, come out and are engaged in the, the life of our, of our nation, the political life of our nation, the civic life of our nation in ways that they have not been before. But I think that, you know, what's important, getting back to what you said, Jeff, is that people, I don't even think, understand, they react to policies um, that are put before them and are, you know, have negative reactions to them, perhaps but don't quite understand that what gives them the right mm -hmm. is almost the impetus for a lot of what uh, we see out there today is, is the 14th Amendment. This notion that you know, people are not being treated 
equally. People are not being treated fairly. The government is doing things beyond um, that which the government is, is supposed to do at, at the state level, you know, at, at the federal level. Um, and that all gets back to, you know, the, the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment, although people don't, I think, recognize mm -hmm. that, don't, don't realize that. Let's talk about some of these issues that are just uh, consuming the, the country. And we need to start with the question of uh, race and policing, which is in the news every day. To what degree does the 14th Amendment restrict the government from engaging in racial profiling and to protect people who are profiled by the police? Well, I mean, again, you get to this notion of, of due process and the way in which state power can appropriately um, be used. I mean, I, I think at a basic level, racial profiling is not a good thing because it's not good policing, you know? It, it just, you know, you want to make sure that uh, the best policing is done when it is fact-based, when there are good predicates to engage in uh, the use of, um, of the police authority. But uh, the due process clause basically says, you know, the government can do a whole variety of things, but it has to be done in certain ways, and there are limits to the power of the state vis-a-vis uh, -vis the citizens that make up, uh, make up the state. And that has been interpreted in any number of different ways. Um, and uh, it, it is something that I think we need to keep in mind as we are in the process of trying to come up with 21st century um, policing for 21st century, um, 21st century problems. A, a follow-up. Uh, just last week in Philadelphia, Starbucks had a very well-reported incident uh, where two African-American men were uh, expelled from the store. Uh, Starbucks is holding sensitivity training. I think you and Sherilyn are going to help uh, advise them in that important project. To what degree does the 14th Amendment apply to decisions by private actors when they call the police? And if it doesn't apply directly, can the values of the 14th Amendment inform private companies as they try to teach uh, employees to treat everyone the same? Yeah, I mean, I think that the values of the, the 14th Amendment um, should, or should, be, should be transcended, you know, because we're talking about, again, really basic notions of how we view each other. Um, this notion of equality is not something simply, it, it, it's primarily focused on the state, but I think it really kind of, you know, goes beyond that and helps to um, order our society and how we view each other as citizens. We are equals, you know. Again, the 14th Amendment says from birth you are imbued with all of these, um, all, all of these qualities, and you're no different. None of us are, are any different from, from the other. And so I think in, um, in contemporary terms, you know, how you view a person who is um, sitting there and waiting for somebody else and, uh, you know, wants to use the bathroom. You know, I mean, there are a whole variety of things that go into the determination about how you should deal with that person. If you had a 14th Amendment um, background, if you were steeped in the 14th Amendment, if you understood what the 14th Amendment was, was about, um, that might shape the way in which you make that determination about calling, you know, the police. Um, so I think that there's a value to the amendment beyond just the ordering of the um, relationship between the state and, uh, and, and citizens. You know, it's interesting. You, you were just talking earlier about, about uh, racial profiling and why it's bad policing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, that's a good example is Starbucks, right? Five police officers two perfectly peaceful young men who are waiting for someone, uh, wh what else could they be doing to deal with, with re a real crime, right, in, in the city um, when they're spending that? So there's, there's the pragmatic argument, and then there's the legal argument. And as we've been kind of grappling over the last few years, um, you know, around these public conversations about, about, about race and policing, what do you think ought to be the balance between the pragmatic, you know, arguments of, you know, it's bad policing and, and, and we could be deployed in different ways, and the, and the legal, this is your obligation, right? Because our, our legal um, obligations order our, order our society in many ways. Um, but for some reason, you know, there are many people who can't really hear the legal argument. Um, and so we offer these pragmatic arguments as well. What, what ought to be the balance? Should we always be seeking to, to describe what works and what doesn't 
as opposed to what's legal and what's not legal, or is there an intermarriage between the two, particularly when we're talking about rights that go to the core, the fundamental core of citizenship, like you know the, the equal protection rights that kind of emanate from the 14th Amendment? Yeah, I, I, I struggle with this as a litigator myself, so I'm asking you that. No, I, I think there's, there's a combination of, of the two. Um, certainly, um, if you are given the ability as a, a law enforcement officer, and I mean this either whether you're a police officer or a prosecutor, um, you've got to obviously be aware of the, the legal limits that, um, th that you have or the legal, um, legal abilities that, that, that you have. But that all has to be tempered by, as you described, you know, the pragmatic. Um, to simply, you know, I, as Attorney General of the United States, I had the ability to put in place policies that would put out a dragnet for, you know, huge numbers of people. Let's just bring them into the criminal justice system. I, I have that legal ability. But pragmatism tells me that um, to ask whether or not is that the best way in which the authority that I had as Attorney General um, should be used. Now, you know, Jeff Sessions and I have very different views about what... Not, not so much like this, more like this. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> different views as to how that power should be used. Um, pragmatically. I think we probably would both agree generally about what the, the legal basis is for, you know, the, the actions that we might want to take. But I think you've got to, you've really got to temper that legal ability, the legal capacity that you have with a healthy dose of, uh, of, of pragmatism. So y you went to law school, uh, let's say decades ago, we needn't, we needn't, we you needn't. didn't even have to say it. You could have just said I went to law school. You could have left it there. When you went to law school. When I went to when law you school. Went to not law school. so long ago. Um, Lincoln was not president. <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm kind of thinking about the arc of the, of, of the 14th Amendment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as, as we've come into talking about marriage equality, if, we, if you know, in decades ago, and thinking about Roe and uh, other kinds of cases in which the 14th Amendment really, in some ways, encapsulates the story of our progress, right? <laughs> but certainly through the, through the second half of the 20th century. Um, and I'm just kind of curious about when you were in law school, what, and you were learning about the 14th Amendment, what were you learning about? What did you, how far did you think it would go? I mean, did you think it was, you know, it would, it would encompass things like wealth? I mean, maybe this was before San Antonio School District versus Rodriguez, or maybe it was afterwards. What was your vision of what the 14th Amendment was capable of doing, of how far it could expand. Um, because I think in some ways there have been disappointments, right, in how far it hasn't gone, and then there are um, really kind of wonderful expansions, you know, for example, around marriage equality and so forth. So it's kind of a tale of two, of two cities. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that if you would have asked the young Eric who was, at, as a, was a law clerk at the Legal Defense Fund yes. after my mm -hmm. first year, and the organization is strong. It survived my summer at, the, uh, at LDF. That, that's the biggest indication of how strong it is. It's a wonderful organization. Um, but if you had told me back in the late 70s that this is where the 14th Amendment is going to be in the 21st century, I would have been shocked. And I also... By I the progress or by the regression, right? Because I think probably it goes both, both ways. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. um, and I th my guess would be that in the 22nd century, mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment will be as vibrant and as important as it has been since its inception. And I suspect that we will be surprised. You know, if you talk to my great-great-great-grandkids, um, they will be shocked. Um, by Oh, I will be shocked by, you know, some of the things that they will be dealing with. Mm -hmm that are 14th Amendment based. Disappointed, you know, in, in certain ways, uh, and hopefully um, pleasantly surprised in, in others. Well, let's talk about one of them. Um, let's talk about voting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is an issue that you were involved in um, when you were at the Department of Justice and certainly the Legal Defense Fund is. But, but here we are, it's 2018, and, and um, you know, in the past five years, we've had a number of cases decided by federal courts in which federal courts have found that state legislatures have deliberately passed uh, laws designed to keep African Americans from voting, and in some cases, African Americans and Latinos. Um, and that's very, that's, that's very retro. <laughs> that is very, very old school. Um, and of course, we have the Voting Rights Act uh, statute, but we also have the 14th Amendment. And these, I think these 14th Amendment violations really tell us something about the moment that we're in. And you've been involved in some of those cases. Um, share a little bit about your thought about, about that, about the, the question of voting rights 
and the 14th Amendment. And, and I mean, I suppose the decisions in these cases mean it's working. But the fact that you have to litigate these cases um, and that the relief is not immediately forthcoming, um, I think in some ways, at least for me, is one of the shocking pieces of the arc of 150 years that we're still kind of litigating those kinds of cases. Tell me about what you're thinking in that voting space. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's troubling that we're still in the process of litigating these kinds of cases, but I, you know, but I, the 14th Amendment and other things give me the tools to, in fact, litigate those cases. Um, you know, power is something that um, people always want to acquire, and some people want to illegitimately hold on to it. Um, they don't want to deal with an unjust, well, they don't want to change an unjust status quo. And so there are a variety of ways in which um, people can try to maintain, um, as I said, an unjust status quo. Fourteenth Amendment um, gives you the capacity to challenge that unjust status quo and to point back to um, what, uh, what was meant after the Civil War and the words of, 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 that, uh, of that amendment. You know, and it is, it is something that is an animating force for the work that we're doing now when it comes to dealing with the problem of partisan gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering, um, voter suppression. Uh, you know, you talk about courts and what they have said. You know, when you hear, a, have a federal court talk about, you know, doing things in an inappropriate way with surgical precision, that's not the way judges, federal judges talk. Um, and yet, they have found that um, things done politically um, have been done inappropriately. And the 14th Amendment and other, you know, other, um, uh, other legislation, there are other, other tools that, that we have, but, you know, it, I, from my perspective, it is, uh, you know, it, we remade America uh, with the passage of the post-civil rights, post-civil war um, amendments, um, and we continue to use them to try to keep perfecting this, this nation. I mean, we made substantial progress as a nation, you know. We are a better nation now than we were 50 years ago, 150 years ago, but we're not yet at the place where we need to be, uh, but those, those amendments, this amendment, um, 150 years old, is as important now as it was uh, as it was then, and I suspect it will be as important 150 years um, from now. You mentioned partisan gerrymandering. That's an issue that you're uh, deeply involved in. The Supreme Court this term is hearing two important partisan gerrymandering cases that could determine the future of the constitutional status of gerrymandering. Describe the constitutional argument that partisan gerrymandering violates not only the 14th Amendment, but also the First Amendment? Well, you know, the, uh, if one looks at the Wisconsin case, for instance, and there's a, there's a Democratic component to this, so this is not something that is just one party as, as opposed to the other. Uh, you look at the, at the Wisconsin case, um, the partisan gerrymandering there, the statistics always kind of sticks in my mind. In 2012, Republicans won less than 50% of the vote, and yet won 67% of the state legislative seats, 67% of the um, congressional delegation. Now, you look at the Maryland case, uh, the Democrats drew a district that is really kind of hard to understand, it looks kind of like a, like a snake, and was designed to um, make more difficult, and in fact, almost impossible for a Republican candidate to, to, win, to win there. Um, and so, you know, we use those tools, 14th Amendment, uh, the First Amendment, um, the ability of a citizen to express himself or herself in a way that is constitutionally um, protected when it comes to casting um, a ballot, uh, to be, uh, to be uh, allowed to have the equal protection of, of the laws, of, of, of the ballot that, uh, of your choice when you go into a, a, into a voting booth. So these are our amendments that, um, that we use. My hope is that the court will find a way um, to rule, I think, in an appropriate way and say that uh, this partisan gerrymandering is inconsistent with the notion that we have of who we are as, as a people, that we cannot have a system where politicians are picking their voters instead of citizens choosing who their representatives uh, ought to be. And if the court rules the way that you hope, what would the effects be? Would it just strike down a few really extreme districts like that in Wisconsin where a minority of voters elect a majority of the seats, or would it have broader effects? Well, I think it would have, it would almost be a sea change. Um, if you look at Wisconsin, there are statistics there that I have quoted, but that is not different than what you see in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Texas. 
Um, and then there are you know, other places that, are not, that you don't identify particular states. Um, no, this would be, this would be a, a sea change. Um, it is why I think the court is wrestling with it as, as deeply as it is, because I think they understand that we would be in a, in a fundamentally different place if there were finally limits put on, uh, on partisan gerrymandering. We have, as a result of the Voting Rights Act, 14th Amendment, some guardrails on, on the racial gerrymandering side. But when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, it is not nearly as clear uh, as to how far uh, a ruling party can go. Just the, Justice Stevens, former Justice Stevens, said it's not fair that the court has applied such strict rules to police racial gerrymandering, but not done the same for partisan gerrymandering. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, you know, it is. It has been said by the court that this is an inherently political process, and all right, I'm willing to concede that. But there have to be limits as to how far you can go. Um, you know, packing people into districts or cracking districts or you know, populations such that um, you guarantee that no matter how good the candidate, no matter how effective the message, no matter how much money um, is spent, a person of one party simply can't win in a district that is drawn in, in such a way. But it also leads to you know, the dysfunction that we see in Washington and in so many of our state houses where uh, if you're a Republican, you're more worried about uh, a primary than you are about a general election. And to be seen as cooperating with a Democratic counterpart to potentially reach a solution about a problem um, is seen as a sign of weakness. And so you drift further and further to, uh, you know, to the right. And now for a brief break. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for select America's Town Hall programs. Credit is available for both in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org CLE for more information. Um, you know, I've been thinking about, uh, again, this, this important role that you, that you held as Attorney General, an extraordinary role of extraordinary responsibility, as you alluded to earlier. And it allowed you and allows, I think, the person in that position to set an example in various areas. And I certainly think that um, certainly in the last years of um, your, your tenure in the Obama presidency, um, you attempted to set that example around prosecutors. And um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, because um, this whole question of, of equal protection is very much pressured in the criminal justice space in terms of what we see the outcomes are for African Americans versus whites. And if we, we can take it from start to finish, we can start with stop and frisk. Um, you know, a case that, that one of the cases that we litigated in New York, you can take it through every moment of the criminal justice system, whether it's bail, whether it's legal representation, whether it's sentencing and so forth, and you see these extraordinary disparities that tell their own story. Um, and you attempted to kind of set an example in somewhere between the space of law and pragmatism about what prosecutors can and should do. Um, and I wondered if you could say more about that, because as you pointed out, the current attorney general holds a different view. But of course, most of our criminal justice system uh, really expresses itself at the state level. And so, the, so local prosecutors still have the ability to follow the kind of example that you set. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you were trying to accomplish and how you diagnose uh, some of the problems in our criminal justice system that you were trying to address with those initiatives. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Setting an example is, is a good way to put it because only 10% of all the people who are incarcerated in this country are in the federal system. 90% are in our state and local systems. And so um, what the Attorney General does um, is in many ways symbolic, but important, um, important symbolism. And yeah, what we were trying to do when we announced the Smart on Crime initiative, I guess in, in, in 2013, mm -hmm was to say that, you know, I understand that my primary job is to keep the American people safe. But the question is, how am I going to do that? How can we do so in a way that um, respects the notion of equal protection, um, that is done efficiently, and that fosters a relationship, a positive relationship between people in certain communities and people in law enforcement? Uh, and so that was what guided me in you know, in, in formulating the new policies that we put um, in place. And we were seeing progress in terms of the things that we did. And we saw for the first time in 40 years a drop in the federal prison population and a drop in, you know, the crime rate at the same time. 
And so I thought that we were on a, a good path. And it was interesting because that was a path with, that was being supported by liberals and conservatives, mm -hmm. by Republicans and Democrats. There, there seemed to be a moment there where we needed to, I thought that we were gonna get legislation. I, I fear that that moment has at least temporarily eluded us. And I think we're gonna have to try to get back on the path because I think we're seeing now uh, the criminal justice system being used as it too often has been, um, as, as a wedge issue, as, as a place in which you place huge amounts of, of, of fear, um, as a way in which you divide the American people, you make the American people afraid of their fellow citizens when statistics don't necessarily bear out, uh, bear this out. And so, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that every day that I walked onto the, the fifth floor and into my office, I had in the back of my mind, um, or the front of my mind, the notion of, uh, of due process, the notion of equal protection. And that, I hope, manifested itself with regard to the criminal justice mm -hmm. policies that we tried to put in place, but also the position we took, for instance, when it came to the Defense of Marriage Act. You know, we had to decide, what are we gonna do here? Um, and, you know, when one looks at the history of gay and lesbian people in this country, uh, the disparate treatment, uh, it made it, for me, not an easy decision, because it went against how the Justice Department generally um, uh, treats federal statutes. We feel there's an obligation, we disagree with it or, or agree with it, to, to defend a statute. Um, but, you know, but when you think back to, you know, a, a civil war, the most cataclysmic thing that this nation has ever had to endure, and those amendments that come from that, um, that cataclysm, and the vitality of the 14th Amendment and the concepts that are contained therein, um, those are the kinds of things that I think public servants, uh, especially people in law enforcement, should keep in mind as they're trying to win their way through you know, difficult issues in the 21st century. I'm, I'm, you're, you, you spent most of your life in, in law enforcement and then as a judge. If you, if there were things that you know now that you could have known at the beginning of that process that might have changed how you approached being a prosecutor or a judge, what might some of those things be? Because I think we're in a kind of golden moment of re-examining of re you know, what we've been doing in the criminal justice system over the last 40 years. There's a very strong and robust movement looking at who the prosecutor is in our society. Uh, and what the role of the prosecutor is, which is to do justice, right? Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think, are there things that you, that you wish, you know, when you were being taught how to be a good prosecutor, right? Mm -hmm. You were being taught at the beginning that would have kind of been a little bit, changed a little bit how you approached the job. Yeah, uh, no, that's, I think that's actually an interesting question. You know, I think um, if the older Eric could speak to the younger version. He can do it right now, do it. <laughs> I'd first tell him to get a haircut. Um, <laughs> Big Afro in those days. Um, but I, I think I would have said, you know, don't be so sure of yourself, mm. you know? Um, don't be so, and, and have a little more faith in yourself. Be a little more outspoken mm. about practices that um, you are engaging in and that have, you've been instructed um, to do. Uh, which isn't to say that, you know, all that I did was wrong, um, but I think there are a lot of things that we could have done better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I got to be Attorney General, I'd like to think that we did some positive things, that I did some positive things, but that was a function of learning, having been a part of the system as a line lawyer, line prosecutor at the Justice Department, a judge during the crack wars in um, Washington, D.C., when I felt like I was just kind of dealing with assembly line justice and putting, you know, African-American guy after African-American guy into jail for periods of time that I thought were inconsistent with the conduct mm -hmm. that they were engaging in. And it was something that ultimately wore me down. I, I was a judge for five years, and I just finally said, I just can't do this you know, anymore. Um, it led me to become U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., where I tried to put in place some of the reforms that we tried to perfect and put in place when I became, um, when I became Attorney General. So, you know, I, I think that's certainly, those are some, some of the things that I think I, I learned and certainly some of the things that I would have done, I think I would have done, would have done differently. I had the opportunity to talk to the younger Eric Holder about 20 years ago and I was a younger reporter and you pointed me toward a really interesting piece, a phenomenon that you found as U.S. Attorney 
where you had African-American jurors sometimes refusing to convict African-American defendants, and it was often just one or two jurors who refused to deliberate. They didn't want to listen to the facts because they mistrusted the police so much. What did you learn since then about how to increase the trust of those jurors and citizens for the police, and are things better or worse than they were 20 years ago when it comes to trust of the police? You know, I'm not sure um, things are worse, but I don't think things have gotten better. Um, I think in spite of you know, all the things that have been tried, I think that that level of distrust is still there. And when you see, you know, now with the advent of iPhones and things, and, and people can, can see um, things as opposed to being told about them, you know, I think the majority community in this country had, was awakened to things that people uh, in the African-American community, the Hispanic community, ha have, had known for, for years. You hear about these things, but it's one thing to hear about them, and then it's a whole other thing to be able to actually see, you know, to see what, what happened. Um, you know, in some ways, what needs to happen is, uh, is, is, is kind of basic. Um, you know, people need to be treated fairly, because th those jurors who um, would vote or not deliberate, um, vote not guilty, not deliberate in cases where the government had proven its case not beyond a reasonable doubt, but really beyond all doubt. And then I would talk to jurors, you know, about, you know, why did you... And they said, well, I'm not going to send another young black man to jail. And I, they knew what the penalties were at some level, even though during voir dire they weren't supposed to consider that, but they knew what that meant. It was going to be a 15, 20-year sentence for, you know, a relatively minor crime. Um, they had seen the way in which the police had interacted um, with, uh, their, their, with, their, with their neighbors. Um, so there are some basic kinds of things. You know, you treat people with respect. Um, you charge cases um, appropriately. You really kind of reach out and make sure that there is a dialogue and an acknowledgement of a, you know, of a history that was not always um, the best and that, you know, uh, we were not always those of us in law enforcement did not always conduct ourselves in, in appropriate ways. I mean, if you acknowledge the past, focus on um, ways in which can, things can be done um, in, in the present, uh, I think we can get to that place. And I thought we were, I thought we were in the process of making <laughs> some, some progress there, but I think that progress really has been, uh, has been halted by this, uh, this administration. Well, I wanna, but I want to encourage you actually on this point because I do agree that um, certainly at the federal level, I think you're right that progress has been halted. But I think, uh, you know, as Americans, we can't unsee what we've seen. Mm -hmm. And there are conversations and dialogues and efforts that have started to move forward at the local level that That's are continuing to move forward. That's a good point. And it's an, it's an interesting, it's a little bit upside down, right? Where we were talking earlier about you as the Attorney General having the power to set the example. And then the theory was that the states would follow. And I think what we have now is it, it's flipped and that what we're going to incubate are lots of experiments and change happening at the local level, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, at some point in the future, the federal government will have to follow. But, yeah. but I, I, so I, I, I feel a little bit encouraged. I want to suggest that that example was set, that, it, that you know, the conversations about what you can do and how you can change and smart on crime and so forth, those things did percolate through. And now it's the job of, of people like me to try to make those things um, continue to have voice and so forth at, at the local level. But, but because no, I think that that's yeah. actually a very good point and, you know, and maybe makes me rethink my assessment of, of where we are because I think you're right. There are a lot of good things being incubated, mm -hmm. at, uh, especially at the, at the local level where DAs um, mm -hmm. are taking different approaches and trying different things. Um, and, I, and I think being, you know, folks who are elected and running now and saying we're mm -hmm. going to do things That's in right. a different way. That's right. We're running gonna, on that platform. Right. Yeah. We're not going to simply go out there and just lock up as many people as we can for as long as we can. We're going to come up with ways in which we um, treat people fairly, hold people accountable. But we're also going to deal with the underlying conditions that tend to, um, that tend to breed um, crime and criminal involvement. So I think that, that that's actually you know, a fair and, and a good point. Well, so I'm going to ask a question that's probably unfair, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, um, just because you probably haven't put this all together in this way. But I would love for you to identify three things that we need at this moment in this country to deal with fracture. So we spend all day talking about you know, the, this important Civil War amendment. We had a whole panel on Reconstruction. We, we talked about a country fractured and devastated, and 
um, some of the mistakes that were made in, in, in gluing us back together. I shouldn't say back together because it implies that we were all together, but in creating this new country in which black people would be full citizens, post-Civil War, reimagining the economy, reimagining our political system, reimagining the relationship between blacks and whites. It's a, it was a heavy lift. Um, and there were moments of it, this experimental moment in which um, much progress was made. But ultimately, we know that all of the progress was not made. And in fact, we know there was a retrenchment into the 20th century that made the civil rights movement um, essential in order to ensure that, that black people could enjoy even a modicum of citizenship. But nevertheless, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tale we have to remember because at this moment in the United States, I think we all feel that we're very fractured. We've been talking about policing and voting and partisan gerrymandering and all of these things that make us feel pulled apart. Um, no comparison to the period we've been talking about all day today after the Civil War. Right. Um, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are if there were three things that we need in this country right now to, to help us imagine ourselves as a country. And by that I mean not that we would agree on everything, but in the same way that even when I don't like certain speech, I also recognize that people have First Amendment rights, mm -hmm. um, that, that people would have this kind of sense of, yes, but we have a 14th Amendment. Yes, but people are entitled to equal treatment. Yes, but there is this thing called birthright citizenship. Yes, but you're, you know, due process is important. That people would recognize and feel that, that those are things that animate in their American spirit enough for them, even when they feel not personally invested, that it's important to uphold those principles. What do we need in this country to get us, to move us further into that sense in which we're in a common project? You're right, that was an unfair question. Yes, I, <laughs> um, I tried to take long to give you time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'd say that w I think we need basic reforms of our political system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that we have gotten things a little out of, out of whack in terms of the, you know, the influence of, of money. Um, this notion of voter suppression, and if we don't do anything with regard to partisan, you know, gerrymandering, that'd be a heck of a legacy for, for this court. You know, Just, Chief Justice Roberts is said to be concerned about um, the reputation of the court under his watch. And if you had, you know, Citizens United, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, and then let's say, I hope it doesn't happen, um, nothing to be done when it comes to partisan gerrymandering. That's a suite of cases quite a that would be, mm -hmm. be quite a trifecta. So I think you know, reforming our political system so that we give true voice to um, the citizens of this nation, I think that'd be a good place to start. Um, I think we have to also understand that there's economic inequality um, that exists in this country. We see widening gaps um, that have to be dealt with. That um, breeds fear, it breeds distrust. Um, it's a destabilizing mm -hmm. thing in our nation. So I think that's something that we have to deal with. I think we also need to embrace our immigrant past. Um, and you know, and always, present. Yeah, we always say that we are a nation of, uh, of immigrants, that we're a, a, a melting pot. Um, I think we need to make those notions real and acceptable. But he, because here's a reality, unless you are descended from the indigenous people, Native Americans, you're all of immigrant stock. The question is, you know, how far back? Maybe and how'd you get here? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, maybe it's your grandmother, great-grandmother, great-grandfather. You came from someplace, you know. Um, those folks who came over on the Mayflower were immigrants. And so as waspy as you are, you are of immigrant stock. And that is something that I think, um, given the demographic changes that this nation is in the process of undergoing, um, something that we need to embrace. Uh, that immigrant past, has, as I think, is always what made, has made this nation great. It gives us a vitality that you don't see in, um, in other nations. You know, the, no the, na the notion that um, other countries send us their worst is totally inconsistent with the facts. I mean, for a person to take himself or herself from a known place, travel halfway around the world, take a job probably that's you know, less than you know, what you had in terms of status maybe in, in another country, um, and to work as hard as you can at two and three jobs uh, so that your kids might have uh, a, a true American experience, you know, those are the people who we get here. Those are the people who want to come to the United States. Those are the people who simply want to be called um, Americans. And I think we need to embrace that. I mean, truly um, mm -hmm. embrace that. Now, we should have borders. 
and we should certainly make sure that we have controls, appropriate controls with regard to our immigration system, but we need to understand that um, what's made this nation great and what keeps it vital is our, uh, our, immigrant, uh, our immigrant heritage. You didn't do bad. That was no. very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I got a We've few got more, <laughs> but that's <laughs> We have some great questions from the audience, and the first one relates to the topic you were just talking about. How does or should the 14th Amendment treat cases of undocumented immigrants? You mentioned that it applies to persons, uh, not just citizens, when it comes to due process and equal protection, but what does that mean in the case of undocumented immigrants? That's an interesting question, um, you know, uh, because I think that as a nation, we have the right, in fact, I think we have the duty to make sure that um, we keep our borders secure. Um, but we also have to deal with a, a, a reality here. We have, you know, the, the estimates vary, 11 million undocumented people or, or so. Let's assume just this for purpose of, of this conversation, that's, that's the number. Um, people who contribute to this nation, um, people who um, are vital parts of our nation. Um, and the notion that somehow we are going to be better off by, I don't know, magically taking them and moving them out of the country um, is, is a fairy tale. Uh, and so, you know, we, we talk about the dreamers, and I think we should focus on them. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing. But I, my concern is we're getting a little too specific there. What we really need to be talking about is what we, again, we're looking at and getting you know, kind of close to this notion of comprehensive immigration reform um, and, and dealing with the folks who are undocumented in this nation and who are um, contributors. So I, I, you know, I, I guess that's, I'm, I'm saying in a, in a, you know, in a, a long way um, that we need to find ways consistent with the, uh, with the 14th Amendment uh, to keep our borders secure, um, and to, you know, and to use the, the spirit of that amendment. You know, because it really is more than a legal, it's more than a legal document. It's more than something written on paper. It's really about who we are as a people, who we want to be as a nation. Um, it's an expression, I think, of America really at its best. You know, this notion that um, everyone should be treated equally, that the government has limits on what it can do. Uh, if we keep that in mind as we try to deal with this problem of, of undocumented people, I think that will lead us to um, appropriate solutions. A thoughtful answer to a tough question. Of course, on Wednesday, the court will hear a challenge to the latest travel ban, which asks a version of that question, which is to what degree does the 14th Amendment and First Amendment's prohibition against religious discrimination apply to those who are outside of our borders? The next question says, I'm a police sergeant. When I return to work on conduct roll call training, I want to give specific examples of why, although the stop and subsequent arrest at Starbucks was lawful, how best can officers confront those situations when called for similar reasons? Well, you know, I, 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 at some point, there's this thing called common sense that needs to kind of, you know, get infused into how we, um, how we react to, to situations. Um, when the guy, well, even before the guy who they were going to meet shows up, I mean, you know, if you're the, the Starbucks employee manager, and I don't know all the history of, you know, that facility or all the things that the manager had to, to deal with, but, but at some point you have to ask yourself, now, do I really need to call the police now? What, what are these two guys doing here? Again, I don't know the history, but what are these, we, we will know the history, but what are, what are these two guys, what's the threat that these two guys pose, or what's the, what's the issue, the problem that the presence of these two guys um, presents? So there's that, common sense there. Um, and then if you are a police officer called to the scene and you've got to make determinations, yeah, I, I suppose that if the store manager says, um, you know, these people are, are, are trespassing. Well, you know, I'd say, all right, and maybe you somehow talk to them, try to, you know, de-intensify the, the situation to the extent that that is, that is possible. And certainly when the person, as I understand it, shows up where they say they were there to meet um, appears, really ask if you're that police officer, do you really want to go ahead with this? Do you really want to... Um, 
do that which you may have the right to do and, is, and to use the power of the state to remove you know, these guys from your, um, from your establishment. Um, and then you know, there are other things. You, know, you have to go to a formal arrest. You know, you know, I think about police officers who um, you know, come into contact with, with juveniles who have done inappropriate things. And they have to make decisions. What are you going to do with that juvenile? Are you going to take that person to the, the precinct, or are you going to take that kid home and tell you know, the parents what this kid was doing? Those, that can be a life-altering decision for that, you know, for that juvenile. And that comes down to, to common sense. And in some ways, you're asking the police to do things that are inconsistent with what they are sworn to do, which is simply to you know, enforce the law. But you can't have blinders on. You know? I, we talked, I guess, earlier about this notion of pragmatism when you are in, in enforcing the law. What is, at the end of the day, what's the best solution here? What is the fair solution here? What's going to be the best resolution? And it may not simply be to just enforce the law as, it is, uh, as it's written, which is not a good thing maybe for, to share with this this sergeant, I think it was, you said, who's going to have to go explain this to, uh, to the people who he's going to be sending out. I'm going to ask one last question and then uh, turn it back to Sherilyn. Uh, and this uh, audience member asks, everything you spoke about points to the need for a more informed citizenry. What do we need to do in this country to get people to realize and fund a better civic education system and to support the National Constitution Center and the NAACP Legal <laughs> Defense and Education Fund? <laughs> It's a crucial question because we are talking about an informed citizenry and how can we mobilize support for that? Well, you know, I'm a, a great believer in our public school system, you know. Um, I hear the stuff about charter schools and I think, oh, that's interesting. So, you know, a certain number of kids end up in charter schools, but they leave a whole bunch of other kids where? Doing what, you know? And I'm the product of the New York City public schools. I got um, a great education there. I'm really heartened to, to see, and I hope this thing catches like wildfire, um, you know, teachers going on, out on strike for higher pay. But I think what people also have to focus on is what they're saying is that they want better tools to um, educate. They want more money so that they can buy the necessary books, buy the necessary pens, pads, I mean, kind of basic kinds of things. Um, so I think that's, that's a place where we, where we need to start. Um, you know, and education is the foundation for a good citizen. Um, a good education is the foundation for, for, for good citizens, and so that is certainly a, a, place, a place to start. And as I said, I am just overjoyed to see these, uh, these teachers finding their voices. Uh, I guess maybe it started in West Virginia, it's now going to other states, and my hope is, and my expectation is actually that we're going to see this happen in other states as, uh, as well. Wonderful. Sherilyn, it's been such an honor to sponsor this incredible day with you and the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. And I think the last question is to Oh, you. fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think I want to take it back to where you just were, um, maybe, maybe back to just the mini snapshot of, of what happened in that, in that Starbucks with these young men who were there for two minutes and the manager calls the police and you ask, I think, many of the appropriate questions. You know, why do you call the police? And then when the police come, what are the options that they have? Um, and why aren't they talking to the young men? And why aren't they, if, if they really believed that this was a, an offense that violated the law, then why aren't they issuing a summons or a desk appearance ticket or whatever it's called in Philadelphia? But, but to go to the level of arrest um, is so extreme. And, and now that we've heard the two young men, it makes it even more distressing and powerful. Um, and what it calls to mind for me is really um, a, an, an unspoken and I think unappreciated history of what it means for African-American people engaging in the public space mm -hmm. and to understand that this was fought for, right? That, mm -hmm. that, that um, here we are sitting in the round in this lovely place, uh, but, but the, the way in which we all got here, right? And, and what you, where, where you could sit on the, on the bus or the train and what, what airport you could leave from and whether you could eat at the airport cafeteria and what school you were assigned to and all of that stuff that we now kind of accept as air actually had to be litigated and fought for. And the same is true in terms of the treatment of African Americans in retail spaces and in the public space. Um, and so I just wonder if you could reflect for a moment on your own life and thinking about the, the ways in which the 14th Amendment, civil rights statutes and so forth have borne on your, on your journey, on, on, you know, on, on where you've ended up. 
Um, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't fool ourselves about, you know, New York. We had, we had cases that we had to litigate there too around school and so forth. And, and so almost every place in this country has been touched by efforts by, by, by ordinary people to bring the 14th Amendment in to make that promise of equal protection real. And, um, you know, I just think sometimes when people see someone like you sitting on the stage and you've been the Attorney General of the United States and you've been a judge and, and you've partnered a law firm and all these wonderful fancy things, but even in your own lifetime, right? Um, your own lifetime has been affected by this powerful amendment that we're talking about and by the journey that is not yet completed as evidenced by what happened um, at the Starbucks. So I wonder if you could just reflect on that a little bit as we close. Yeah, you know, I think personally, um, <laughs> when I was the Deputy Attorney General in the Clinton administration, we announced a, um, a consent decree with the uh, New, Jersey, um, state, uh, New Jersey state troopers. Um, who are stopping African Americans, um, you know, for little or no reason going up and down the Jersey Turnpike. And I thought that was really kind of interesting because it was a class action suit and I was a part of the class. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember being stopped on two occasions, uh, once for speeding. I had a 1971 Plymouth Duster. Hmm. That thing was incapable of speeding, <laughs> you know? Um, and I remember that, so they got stopped one time. I remember another time, now, again, I'm, you know, I'm a college kid, you know, big Afro and all that stuff. Um, I remember a trooper stopped me and said, you need to search your car for, uh, for weapons. And I was thinking, huh? What, what was I speeding, whatever? So, you know, you, you have those um, experiences. And then, so I'm, I'm standing there as deputy attorney general and, you know, announcing this consent decree and thinking, well, yeah, I remember, you know, those experiences. Um, you know, as I said before, our nation's in a better place um, than it was, but we're not yet at the place where we need to be. And there are, what you said I think is really important, people need to understand that there are sensitivities that have been, um, you know, I've had a good life, you know? I mean, by any measure, I have had a very, I've had huge numbers of opportunities. Um, I've held, you know, prestigious positions. And yet, I carry with me um, the experiences of my ancestors. And that, I see the world um, differently than, say, um, a white man who had, um, you know, similar kinds of achievements. Um, it is, you know, race is still something that matters in this, this country. It doesn't mean that, um, as I said, we're not in a better place than we were, but we still have racial issues to, to grapple with. Um, we have gender issues to, to grapple with. We have sexual orientation issues to grapple with. Um, we, we simply can't, you know, th this notion of, you know, making America great again. I think, all right, well, that has kind of a temporal component to it. So when was America great, you know, under that definition? Well, certainly wasn't, you know, during the time of slavery. Uh, I would say probably not during the time of re Reconstruction. It wasn't when women didn't have the right to vote. Um, it wasn't when, you know, uh, discrimination in its rawest form was directed at uh, members of the LGBT community. It, you know, it talks about a past that only ex existed um, for, for certain people and not for, you know, substantial numbers uh, of others. And I think it actually betrays, uh, it, it's, almost a f it's almost born of fear, you know, not wanting to uh, what I think America does when it's at its best, which is to embrace the uncertainty of the future and not find comfort um, in an already decided past. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's what I think has animated me throughout my life. You know, I'm proud of who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm proud of who I am. You know, my, my folks are, are immigrants, um, you know, West Indians who worked hard, uh, my father dropped out of, of, of high school, and yet he's one of the wisest people uh, you know, I ever knew. Um, my mom, smart as a whip, but denied opportunities because she was a woman, um, but both determined that they would make better lives for, you know, for, for, for their kids. Um, and that's kind of, that's part of the American experience, you know, always make it better for, um, for the next generation. But that doesn't mean that this generation, my generation, um, doesn't remember what my father had to go through. For instance, you know, World War II. He serves as a master sergeant um, 
and is discriminated against in North Carolina, in Oklahoma, while he's in uniform. Didn't in any way decrease the love that he felt for um, this country, but as he relays that story to me, um, that's something that sticks in my mind, I, in some ways maybe more than it stuck in, 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 in his, uh, and made me determined to work at the Legal Defense Fund and to try to use the public positions that I've had um, so that those kinds of things don't happen, so that this nation becomes um, even better, that this nation becomes all that it is capable um, of being. I love this country. I believe in this country. Um, I think that uh, if we work together, if we believe in one another, if we persevere, we can get to the place that um, I think the 14th Amendment thought we should get to or, or should be about. Um, that is in some ways the most hopeful expression of American democracy, you know, the 14th Amendment. Um, you know, this notion of equal protection, this notion of due process. Um, that is really kind of the foundation of the America, I think, that we all want. Thank you, everyone, for a wonderful day. Thank you. See you outside. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by me, Lana Ulrich, and Ugana Etze. The Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.